For hundreds of years, the planet Mars has been the subject of heated controversy among scientists. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. Tango Delta nominal. Five, four, three, two. Main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity. When you look at a planet as one little tiny dot in space, it, it really isn't representative of what's going on on the planet. It's a stretch goal. It is so audacious. We are one world, and that we are more connected than we um, give ourselves credit for a lot of the time. Hello, welcome to We Martians. I'm Jake Robbins. NASA's Juno spacecraft at Jupiter is in its extended mission these days, and things are really getting exciting as it embarks on a series of flybys of the Jovian moons. Earlier this year, it flew by Ganymede, and just last month, it made its close pass of Europa. Trips to Io still await. I wanted to learn more about Juno, its ongoing mission, and the interesting things it can do at these fascinating moons, so I called up Scott Bolton. Scott is the principal investigator for Juno and joins me today to explore this incredibly weird environment that is the Jupiter system. All right, so I'm here with Scott Bolton from the Juno mission. Scott, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here with you. Uh, I'm excited to talk about Juno today. Juno's been up to some pretty cool stuff lately, and uh, we're going to dig into uh, moon flybys and magnetospheres and all sorts of cool science about this. Um, I want to learn a little bit about you first, though. So could we just talk briefly, uh, you know, what's your background and how did you get into the job of being a principal investigator? So um, <clears throat> when I graduated college, I, I uh, went to work at Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California. And I was pretty excited about it. When I was in college, I, I went at the encouragement of a bunch of friends, we went to a talk that was about Voyager results. And one of the people that had gone to the university had came back and was showing you these really cool pictures of Jupiter and, uh, and that they were, had this plan and we're going to go to Saturn and Uranus and Neptune. And I was just amazed at looking at this. And I had always uh, sort of dreamed of being part of Star Trek and uh, I wanted to travel around uh, not just our solar system, but, you know, the galaxy. And um, <clears throat> and I looked up and I thought, well, this place, JPL, there's going as far as you can go. I ought to take a look at them. And uh, I was lucky enough to get a job there and, and went in and started working on, on, on sort of future mission uh, designs. And so it was really a great job really cool that you were touching you know the future and dreaming about going to places some of the early missions uh, have actually become a reality we were uh, i was looking at something called solar probe which was to go study the sun and you were going to get really close and i couldn't figure out how to stop from melting and <laughs> um, and then there was a mission to Halley's comet and some other things and venus and eventually, um, I found myself more excited about the science than I was the engineering even, even though I was pretty amazed at the engineering, but I was kind of hanging around trying to figure out the, the science instruments that people were proposing. And uh, so I uh, went back to school, started at Caltech, and eventually went to Berkeley to get a, um, uh, a graduate degree in physics and astronomy. And then came back to JPL and um, started working Galileo, which was a mission that was uh, going to Jupiter. It was a it was an orbiter that uh, launched in 1989. I got back there just in time to get to be part of it, 
and um, and then for jump from there to a mission called Cassini. And I, in the middle, I worked a few other missions to Mars, to comets, to different kinds of things. Um, and then uh, while I was on Cassini, started developing the ideas of what became Juno and uh, put together a team and we proposed it. And um, NASA liked the idea. The review boards all liked it. So the next thing I knew, we were headed to Jupiter. <laughs> Always a, a fun story to hear how these things come together because they seem to take a lot of meandering paths. Like there's ever seems to be a um, uh, just like came up with an idea and then it worked right away. Like there's always like a, a bit of a drama and some, some way along that chain, I find. <laughs> yeah, there, I, I skipped over some, <laughs> some pieces, um, but there were some, you know, accidental discoveries or ideas. I'm not sure where they came from. I was working on something on Cassini, flying by Jupiter, trying to figure out what to do. And one of the theorists came to me and said, you know, you have this idea of mapping out the radiation belts. Could you use that to figure out, uh, you know, the temperature of the atmosphere at a 20 centimeter wavelength. And I was like, well, maybe that's sort of the noise. Why do you want to know that? And he goes, well, if we could figure that out, we could figure out how Jupiter was formed. And I thought, <laughs> wow, that sounds pretty profound. And uh, went home and, you know, the next day came in and said, hey, I thought of an idea in the shower. And, uh, you know, I was, if we could get a spacecraft with a certain kind of instrument over the poles of Jupiter, I think we could make this measurement. And, um, and he I said, I can't do it with Cassini though. And he said, I think you have the basis of a whole mission. And I thought, Oh, you know, he's crazy. That'll never work. But then I found out that he was one of two architects that had actually started the Cassini mission. And, and he immediately linked me to the other theorists that had started Cassini and they both jumped on and said, you got to create this mission. And, um, so you know, why that idea came to me in the shower, I have no idea. Ironically, it was about the idea of measuring water. So maybe there was some kind of weird idea of that. Um, but, you know, one thing led to the other. And one thing I can tell you is, is in this business, you have to have a lot of patience because, mm -hmm. you know, these missions take a long time from the, uh, you know, I thought of that idea and it was probably the, you know, 1999, the year 2000, something like that. Yeah, I was going to say. And, you know, by the time we launched, it was 2011. We arrived at Jupiter in 2016. Today, it's 2022. So, you know, a whole generation basically has gone by. So it's a it's a slow process when you're trying to reach the outer planets. Yeah, yeah. Especially with the outer planet stuff like that. It's just even just adding the transit time necessarily makes everything a little bit longer, right? Exactly. So Juno's now in its extended mission, uh, which is great. Uh, it's always a cause for celebration for me when we get to the extended missions. That's always a great, great news. Um, how's it going? I always like to kind of just check in and see how the spacecraft are doing because technically it's it's past its warranty now. So, you know, is everything working okay? Everything going good for Juno? Yeah, I mean, it's it's fantastic. We I think we have sort of an extended warranty now. Um but there's no guarantees in life, especially with spacecraft. And of course, Jupiter is a beast of a planet. Um, it is a monster. There's no question about it. Everything about it is extreme. And one of the things is the radiation belts and how hazardous it is to be there. So Jupiter, I mean, Juno is like a, an armored tank. And we, we were designed um, with some warranty or i would say with some conservatism to try to last 32 orbits although even that was risky um and that we passed that last summer um 
in uh, 2021. And as you say, we're now in our extended mission. Everything is working great. We're, um, we don't see real signs of degradation from the radiation, even though we're way past our warranty time, so to speak. Um, and all the instruments are working. And now in the extended mission, we're not only doing more uh, of the Jupiter science and trying to address some of the questions that we uh, kind of gave ourselves and dis- uh, based on discoveries, but we're actually spreading out and are able to do, you know, close flybys of the satellites and study the rings and study the distant part of the magnetosphere. We're going to new places and we'll get new perspectives at Jupiter that we haven't been able to do before just because our orbit is changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that Juno's got this really cool feature. You mentioned it was built like a tank and it has this like radiation vault. What is it? Is it made out of titanium? I think that, that kind of encapsulates the, the computer and stuff. That's exactly right. We have uh, big walls of titanium that, uh, so we have like what we call a radiation vault and, uh, and the sensitive electronics uh, are inside of that. And the walls are made out of titanium and you have to have special louvers because, you know, like, like electronics, if you get, too close to your stereo, you'll notice that it's putting off a lot of heat and uh, ours put off heat as well. And so you got to make sure it stays cool. And, um, and that was a, an innovation, one of the technological innovations that Juno pioneered and it's being copied. I mean, I think once we develop that idea and, and put it into place and it worked, other missions and other NASA satellites and maybe even military satellites will start to look at that kind of a design because it's very efficient. You know, you put all your sensitive things into one shielded box and um, and shield the heck out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And how did that like I'm curious to know, I mean, obviously it's working, but I'm curious to know sort of where it where the, the vault technology ended up kind of relation to the predictive models right like so you know now five years on into the extended mission is uh is the amount of radiation leaking in kind of about what you expected a little more a little less well we we don't know exactly because we don't have a direct measure of of the radiation that coming in but we do know that we have sensitive parts and and we had you know planned for a certain kind of shielding with a certain sort of uh, conservative factor um, and we're lasting. So I think it's it's probably working better than we had originally predicted. Um, there's a chance that the radiation is a little less than what we predicted because there's sort of margin everywhere. Um, but I think the idea of it works very well. And it's a very efficient and cost-effective way to design something. Because uh, otherwise, you have to go in and do all of this um, special design and, and um, shield each part and each component. And we have many sensitive electronics in there, each of the science instruments, lots of the engineering subsystems, the computer, as you mentioned, um, all of the brains sort of of, um, of Juno are in there. And you can see that, you know, Europa Clipper is following the same design. And so is uh, European Juice Mission. They both have enge- uh, challenges with radiation. And so they put all of stuff in one box like that. Um, you still have to uh, shield the sensors. And in fact, we run cables, right, for, for electrical stuff out to the sensors and for data. And we, have to have, we had to have a whole study of, you know, how to shield those cables. So it's, 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 it's a very elaborate, uh, complicated design to do. <laughs> but it's still simpler than trying to do it piecemeal. 
Right, right, right. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about Europa. This was sort of the big headline news that Juno uh, got to bask in uh, these past few weeks. Um, So the spacecraft made its first flyby uh, by this moon, which was uh, very exciting, very close it went, and we got some pretty nice pictures out of that. I want to maybe just start with what were you hoping um, this flyby campaign could answer in terms of big science questions? Like what is what is Juno's big opportunity to contribute by uh, flying by the moon? Well, first is is we were flying by really close uh, at a distance of about 350 kilometers above its surface, and there's only been a couple of flybys that close in all of history. Galileo did them and they were, um, you know, a generation, 20 years or more ago. Mm-hmm. And so this was the first really close look in a really long time. And we had uh, a very full, complete set of uh, instruments, although we were designed to look at Jupiter. A lot of them uh, had direct application to Europa, just like Voyager and Galileo and Cassini studied both the satellites and um, the big planet, the giant planet, we also could do that. And so we, um, we had a couple of unique things that were available to us. One is, is that we're in a polar orbit around Jupiter. Everything else is going around near the equator. And so we were coming in uh, at, a, at an angle, so to speak, to Europa. So we had already seen from a distance the poles of some of the satellites, but we were far away. So this was a chance to get up really close. Um, of course, the closest approach is along the equator, just like others had seen. But we were coming at a at a at an angle that hadn't been seen. We were also coming from the dark side uh, and leaving out on the day side. So some of the unique things that we could do is because of the angle, and we had very sophisticated instruments, we could study the re, uh, interaction between Europa and Jupiter's magnetosphere probably much better than had been done before. We have very good instruments, very high resolution, and a very complete package of what's called fields and particles. So we're looking at charged particles, plasma waves, radio emissions, the magnetic field, um, even to some extent the dust environment. And it's very important because Europa is sitting being bathed in this radiation. Uh, Of course, one of the interests is, is it habitable because it you know, it's thought to have a salty ocean underneath its ice crust. And so understanding how that interaction works with the radiation and, you know, whether something habitable would be killed off and exactly at what rate. Some of the scientists believe that some of the darkening on Europa is caused by this radiation uh, from Jupiter hitting Europa. So we were able to kind of characterize that and see it for the first time and take a look at it. We also could look at the composition of the material around Europa much better than had been done before. Um, But we also had some unique instruments. So we had a radio science instrument that could do a occultation to search for a sort of a distant exosphere or distant atmosphere of Europa, look at the interior structure, um, look at the infrared composition on the surface, take really close up images, right? So we were gonna see territory at some of the best resolution that has ever been seen before. Kilometer resolution, get big swaths of it at that um, resolution. We had one image that we could take at about two, 300 kilometer, uh, 200 meter resolution. So one kilometer down to 200, 300 meters, that's some of the best ever. Um, And then maybe one of the most important 
measurements that we were going to make was from an instrument that is really invented for Juno. It's called the microwave radiometer, and it was invented to be able to see underneath the clouds at Jupiter to investigate deep the deep atmosphere, see how it's structured and what its composition is. But when you point that instrument at ice, you actually see into the ice. Oh, wow. And so that's very unique. And um, nothing like that had been done before. Of course, Clipper and Juice both have radar instruments that are intended to do just that as well. Ours is a passive, but unlike theirs, we have six different frequencies and they only have one or two. And so they're going to see uh, things that we couldn't possibly see, but we also are going to see things that they can't see. And so together, they complement each other and they're even more powerful. So ours was the first look at you know, what the structure of the ice might be like. Is there regions uh, where maybe water or liquid is closer to the surface? Uh, is there a hint that how deep that ice is? Because nobody really knows. Does it vary? Um, what kind of um, scattering and fracturing is in the ice? So uh, this this one instrument can, can sort of look at a little bit of all of that. Um, mm -hmm. And so that was a very important first um, that we were going to provide. So that coupled, you know, so I, I would say the three biggest things that we were going to look at would be, you know, the ice and the structure of that crust and whether there was liquid near the surface, um, what the radiation environment was really like and what it's doing to Europa and um, to get very close up images to look to see if there have been changes since we've last been there and to see if we could learn more about the amazing geology and the uh, kinds of things that are causing the cracks uh, of Europa's ice shell. So all of that um, was a, a really big step a that lot. kind of glued, <laughs> you know, a, a generation ago when we investigated this and discovered how interesting the place was and the future, uh, which might come with Clipper and Juice. So it was mm -hmm. a very nice uh, connection to have. And there's no doubt in my mind we'll analyze our data, which we aren't done with yet, and, and figure out what we think we, what it means. But then when Clipper gets there, they'll go back and combine our data with theirs and, and learn even more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have like so many follow-up questions for everything you just said. I'm trying to think. I, where to I threw a lot that. out at you. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's all good. It's all good. This is uh, this is why I like to do this. So um, I, I think I'll ask about the radiation because this seems to be like a, a pretty big theme as I learn more about Jupiter science and, and, and the moons, because there seems to be this really kind of interesting interaction in this environment, because I, everyone kind of knows Jupiter's got all this radiation pouring out of it, but the spin of that planet seems to have like a, a reasonably big impact on the, the magnetosphere and the radiation. And then you have the motion of Europa. I don't know if it has its own kind of magnetism. Maybe it's like a, a core or a crustal or something like that, but it's, you know, interacting and there's all this kind of stuff. Happening. Everything's in motion and all this stuff is happening. Can you maybe describe like, what do we not know very well about that radiation environment? Because that seems to be like a, a place of a pretty intense study. We hardly know anything about it. So we went <laughs> That's by my favorite what, what, answer to that kind of question. <laughs> we, what we know is it's very harsh and, and certainly has a, a big effect on Europa. Um, the study of, of Europa with the Galileo magnetometer um, was part of, of and, and maybe the largest part of 
why people believe that there may be a liquid ocean underneath. So, so Europa does not have its own magnetic field. In fact, the only moon that has been discovered to have its own internal magnetic field uh, is Ganymede, which we flew by last summer, and we certainly saw that, and Galileo had seen it as well. Uh, we got you know something unique there too. But so what happened was with Galileo is it flew by uh, Europa a couple times and Europa moves up and down inside of, of Jupiter's um, magnetic field. So that's sort of the background. And by looking at how the magnetic field reacts to that motion, you uh, the scientists were able to realize that, you know, the magnetic field is passing through um, Europa and and in order for the signature to be, you know, explained, it, it implied that it had a, a, a salted ocean, possibly, because there's a conductive path. And you can imagine the electricity or mag magnetic field passes differently through that than it would a simple ice crust or uh, an iron core or whatever else you might think of is in the middle. So from that, we were able to uh, get some evidence that there was a, a pretty big ocean underneath the ice that probably was salty um, and or at least had some salt in it. And in fact, um, even though Europa is about the size of our moon, it's not that big across. Um, it's a little less than 2000 miles in diameter. Um, it actually has more water, if this theory is right, than we do. And the reason is, is our oceans aren't as deep and they don't go all the way around, right? Mm -hmm. So what's thought to happen at, at Europa is that there's a layer um, down, I don't know, 10, 20 miles maybe. Nobody knows exactly how deep, but then there's this big layer of liquid that's all around. So the whole ice shell encases a global ocean that might be 40 or 100 miles thick. Yikes. So that's a lot of water, more than we have. If you just add up the volume, it's like twice what our volume is. Now, that theory may not be right, but that's what the evidence is pointing to. Um, and, and Juno didn't get any evidence that directly uh, addresses exactly how thick that ocean is, although we may be able to, by looking at the ice crust, peel out how, deep, how, how big the ice crust is, how thick it might be. And we may see evidence of water that's close to the surface, but we probably won't necessarily hone in on how thick that ocean is, although we have very sensitive magnetometers and we also measure the magnetic field, but it takes a lot of work to go analyze those. So I can't tell you what we saw there, but there is a chance that we would be able to take our data and add it to the old Galileo data and refine that knowledge. Um, one of the things that we have an advantage over is, is we can look at the charged particles, what you call the radiation, um, which are carrying currents as well around there. It's sort of the noise to the measurement. And we'll be able to uh, probably estimate that noise better. And, you know, when I call it noise, I just mean that it interferes with the science signal. So there are two conflicting signals. So if I can understand what one signal is, and that's, the, and don't get me wrong, that's the science to some people, <laughs> not the noise. Um, <laughs> But if we can understand that better, then we can go back and maybe look at the magnetic field science even better and hone in on that. Um, but the radiation is definitely a problem at Europa for life or habitability. Um, it probably doesn't penetrate very deep into the ice, although it, it probably coats it. 
So if, if, uh, if there are living um, organisms that are on Europa or used to be on Europa or could be in the future, let's say, um, either they would evolve to be able to tolerate it, which is possible, um, or they might live underground because uh, the radiation probably only goes down a little bit. You know, you go down a meter, you're probably completely protected. Yeah, so yeah. if we were there, uh, you'd want to build an igloo out of all that ice really fast. <laughs> I know there was a bunch of rumblings on uh, in the Twitterverse this week, too, about sort of that, that surface level radiation. And maybe some of the early results had revealed that it's a little more benign than we expected. Did you see something like that at all? I have, and, and I would not uh, sign up to saying that just yet. Okay, um, yeah, I was going to ask, I, I was like, it's, it's early, and we don't really know. I know a lot of people want to believe that, but there's a, it's very complicated <laughs> to go analyze that. And um, and the real thing that, that Juno offers is, is we're seeing it at an angle, right? Uh, uh, not just at the equator of Jupiter. And, um, and so we really have to understand how it changes as a function of that latitude as we move through Jupiter's magnetic field and magnetosphere. And it, there's also time variability going on. So I'm not quite ready to say that it's lower than, than people expect. I can say that Juno has lasted longer and doesn't show any problems, but most of the time that Juno has been at Jupiter, we're much closer and in a much different kind of radiation than Europa Clipper would be, or even Europa itself is bathing. Europa is a bad place, but get close to Jupiter and it gets worse. And that's where we spend our time. Um, so I'm not quite ready to say that myself, but I do have hope that that's true. Cool. Okay. That's great. Um, I wanted to ask about one of the instruments uh, and this, I guess it's technically not an instrument. It's the, the stellar reference unit. I guess this is like your star tracker, um, but you actually used it to gather some pictures. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose to leverage that and sort of the benefits that it gave you? Yeah, sure. So so most spacecraft have something that's like that, this stellar reference unit, because <clears throat> it's a special camera that's designed to be able to um, look at stars. And in order to look at stars really well, it needs to have pretty good resolution, but it also needs to have very good properties with low light. Um, so it's it's designed to work really well in low light conditions, right? Because stars are pretty dim. It wouldn't look good. It wouldn't even work very well looking at a big bright object like Jupiter when it's sunlit or even Europa when it's sunlit. It would just be completely overwhelmed, right? Like a camera that gets overexposed. Mm -hmm. it, it likes low light conditions. So we put it on there obviously for, to help pointing and, and to check navigation and where we were and our orientation. You make maps of the stars and you compare them to computer maps that you have and figure out where you are. Um, but early on in the mission, we decided to start using it scientifically because it was a camera and it had special characteristics. So we've managed to capture some really amazing images with it already. Uh, some of Jupiter's rings, which are hardly no, anything's known about them because they're very hard to image. They're very low light. This camera's really great at being able to do that. We've also been able to look at Jupiter's night side and actually see lightning. Um, and so we've discovered um, things about lightning in Jupiter's atmosphere that we didn't know before. And we're still scratching our heads trying to make sure we understand how that works. Um, but when we went by the satellites, we also... Um, tried to think outside the box 
And so what we did was we took a picture of uh, Ganymede when we flew by that and Europa on their night side. So we looked at, at Europa's night side. If you remember, we were, I said we were, came in on the night side, actually. And so it was one of the first images that we took. Coming in on the night side, you take a, a picture and you, it was designed and very specially calculated so that it would be Jupiter shine that was lighting up Europa. So we had sunlight bouncing off of Jupiter, hitting the dark side of Europa, and this camera was able to take a picture and see incredible contrast and detail at something like 200, maybe 250 meter resolution. So it's it's one of the highest resolutions, most interesting geologic um, pictures I think that I've ever seen. It's it, it almost looks like it has this a musical note type formation on it. I'm not sure what it what it is yet. We're still trying to figure out what we're looking at, but it was a um, a really great use of this uh, special camera, and um, I'm hoping that you know. Juno kind of pioneered the idea of using engineering subsystems as science instruments because you try to do everything you can. And I hope that um, other spacecraft um, in the future and other missions will be able to do the same thing. You have to kind of think ahead. When we were designing the camera, we had to think a little bit about could we use it that way? And so it's designed so that we could. It's one of my favorite um, like narratives in exploring the solar system is turning these kind of like 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 you know, these these little systems get promoted to science instrument and i think it's such a fun story like one of my other favorites is like the the visual monitoring camera on mars express the mars webcam so to speak right it had had one job to image the separation of the beagle lander and then that was all it really had to do and they've just been taking pictures of mars for 20 years with it. it's like one of my favorites <laughs> yeah it's great yeah um, any other big reveals from the data that uh, you're excited about? Anything, you know, just I know it's been a couple of weeks, a week or two or whatever it's been, and, and it's still early. But um, what else has maybe surprised you so far and what you've seen? Well, um, you know, we were fortunate. We used our Juno cam camera. That's our normal color camera, although it's on there primarily for outreach purposes. We have a website where our data is actually just put out raw and citizen scientists, public artists, students, they all make all the pictures for, for, for us, in fact. And some of them are art, not just science. Um, but the design of that um, experiment when it flew by Europa was able to capture a, an image along uh, Europa's Terminator. That's the line between day and night. And um, if you ever um, take a pair of binoculars or a telescope and look at our moon, um, one of the most interesting places is to look along that terminator where it's nighttime versus daytime on the moon. Um, because you can see um, shadows, right? Which will reveal mountains and crevices and canyons. And it's, it's and then you can kind of imagine yourself there. At least that's how I used to look at the moon. And if I looked at that Terminator, I could imagine hiking around it and things like that, because I could see the topology. Um, and on Europa, we got a great shot of that. So we see all kinds of shadows, right? Partly just because we have a, a, a big angle to the sunlight coming in you know, the phase angle, what, what scientists would call the phase angle, but it's a, it's a, there's a big angle. And so you see the shadows and along that terminator, you see them even more. 
And so that's really fascinating because you can start to calculate. We haven't done it all yet, but you could almost calculate the heights of some of these things. You see these, um, you know, tower-like structures that seem to be sticking up. Um, and then you see, you know, big craters and canyons and uh, ridges. Um, you know, Europa is an amazing place that's crisscrossed with cracks all over the place. They almost look like roads, um, but they're what they really are is cracks in the ice because it's, it's constantly getting squeezed and bent by Jupiter's gravity field. And so it's, it's just a, it's an ice ball that's getting pushed around a lot and squeezed. And so it cracks. Um, and that may, and it looks a little bit like our, um, you know, polar regions when you, if you fly over on a plane and you can take a look and see how the glaciers are starting to break up or how cracks form. Um, Europa looks a lot like that. And I've thought that ever since the Galileo and Voyager days when we first saw it. Um, so that was a, a really great, uh, I can't tell you all the details of the discovery because people are still combing through the data, but being able to see that and be able to do some science with that kind of geology and that kind of resolution is really exciting. And I expect a lot will come from that. Um, and then I already went through what the microwave um, did, but some of the, uh, you know, other experiments that were really great uh, that are some of my favorites are, um, you know, the whole occultation and the plasma interaction. And one of the things that we looked for is we saw um, not only just protons and electrons, but we saw a lot of H2 plus. So that's, that's two hydrogen atoms put together charged in a positive. So they've lost an electron. So that's, that's a piece of water basically, right? So water is two hydrogens and one oxygen. And what I'm seeing is a piece of that water molecule, what we would call water group ions. And they're all over the place. And, and uh, I think that we've really got a good discovery there of what that's like. And, um, and, and we'll be able to make an estimate of, you know, what's happening, whether it's ice or water or how it's happening, but may not, uh, we may not know exactly, but we're seeing, you know, signatures of water group ions around Ia, around Europa. That's not a huge surprise if you think it's covered with ice in an ocean. I was going to say, it's just getting blasted all from the surface. How right? much of it's there might tell you. I mean, one of the big questions is, you know, uh, you know, are there geysers there, you know, like Enceladus has. Hmm. Enceladus is a moon of Saturn that, that Cassini discovered had a lot of geysers. There's been scientists that have looked with Hubble telescope that thought they saw geysers or plumes coming out of Europa, you know, water coming out of the ice cracks or whatever. And we didn't see that and nobody else has been able to see it, but taking a measure of how much water might be coming out and where is it, is it in one place or another uh, might help you understand that it just helps you understand the whole interaction. And that's part of the interaction of the radiation. It's also part of the interaction of just sunlight. So looking ahead to the future, um, you know, Juno's not done. There's some, I think there's, there's a couple more flybys at least planned. Can you talk about sort of what the, 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 the future looks like for the rest of this extended mission? Sure. We're only in the beginning, actually. We're about to go on our 46th orbit around Jupiter. So when we pass by Europa, that was the 45th orbit. And of course, just a, six hours later, we pass by Jupiter, right? So we're, we're just looking at Europa on the way into Jupiter, so to speak. 
Um, and our main, we're still going to be studying Jupiter's northern hemisphere. We're getting really close to it because our orbit is getting twisted around. The same reason that we get close to the satellites, we get really close to Jupiter's northern hemisphere. And we'll be able to resolve and look at the microwave of those um, giant polar cyclones that we discovered there. Um, but we also are looking at the aurora. We're going to drop down really close to the aurora on Jupiter. And that's really important. We're going to get close to the rings of uh, Jupiter, and we'll be able to study those even more than we have. We have a few images of them, but we'll be able to actually fly through them and look for charged dust and impacts and kind of get a better understanding of what the distribution and how those dust rings are made at Jupiter. Um, and then um, about a year from now, a little more than a year, uh, we'll fly by Io. So we flew by Ganymede last summer, just flew by Europa last month, and in a little more than a year, we'll fly by Io. It's the most volcanic body in the entire solar system. We'll get two flybys of that. And one of the big things that we're trying to understand is not only how do those volcanoes uh, affect Jupiter and its magnetosphere, because we know it's just filling the entire system with volcanic material, but also... Um, you know, what's making all those volcanoes? Is there a global magma ocean or is it little pockets like we think ours were? <laughs> so that happens in, in uh, December 2023 and February 2024. And then we keep going around Jupiter. Uh, we're in, actually inside of Io at this point. Uh, and so we're, I mean, we're always closer to Jupiter. Our flybys are like 5,000 kilometers above Jupiter's uh, cloud tops. But part of our orbit that goes by the equator keeps moving in closer and closer. And, and so we'll study, you know, besides the rings, as we get in close, we'll be studying uh, Jupiter uh, really, really close up and maybe some of the radiation belts even more. Um, and so there's a lot of science that's going to come and we'll eventually swing around. We're a solar powered spacecraft, so we're not designed to, we don't, we, we like to stay in the sunlight. Right. And uh, because we're solar powered, but we're lasting so long in our extended mission that we actually go behind Jupiter for a little while. And, and we have these little passes. Um, they're just an hour or less. And we have batteries that cover us. But we'll be making a, a whole series of occultations of Jupiter's atmosphere. And very little is understood about how its atmosphere high up, turn, you know, right. At, how does it decay and become part of space? Where, where's the line between Jupiter's atmosphere and outer space? And how does that change from Jupiter's equator up to where the aurora are? Because the aurora has particles coming in. And so there's a lot of physics going on there. And that happens on the Earth to some extent. And uh, this will be the first time we really can look and study that at Jupiter close up. So we have a whole series of occultation science um, that's coming up that we haven't really ever done before. Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot, a lot of science left to do. Um, I have to ask, and this is, this is a question that no PI really likes to talk about, but um, if I think about the far future, somewhere very far away from now, when, when the Juno mission ends, like this is sounding a lot like, kind of like Cassini where it got closer and closer and closer. Does, does Juno's destiny lie in the same sort of like dive bomb into the clouds the way Cassini ended? <laughs> It will. Someday, uh, Juno will fall in and get pulled into Jupiter. And so during the prime mission, 
like Cassini, we had um, had planned due to planetary protection to dispose of the spacecraft before the end of the mission on purpose. Mm-hmm. And that was so that we didn't accidentally, you know, crash into Europa, right? We didn't want to contaminate it if we want to study it. And so uh, that's called planetary protection. And we had carried uh, a couple of a backup way and a primary way to dispose of the spacecraft and make sure that it went into Jupiter uh, when we wanted it to. Um, then when we got the extension and we were still working fine and we, uh, you know, uh, planned and, and proposed an uh, extended mission uh, with a certain with certain characteristics and certain kinds of science. Part of those was to fly by Europa. And we explained that when we once we flew by Europa, which just happened last month, um, we really couldn't get back there. Uh, Jupiter's gravity is too powerful. We don't have enough power in our thrusters to actually go back. Otherwise, we'd go study it again if we could. <laughs> um, but we can't even get there by mistake. And so <laughs> now it's under study to see if we really have to dispose of the spacecraft or not. And um, I don't think any final decisions have been made. But I think it may happen that they just say, well, you can probably just die naturally. And we'll, and that what does that mean? Well, either the radiation will... Will, will hurt the electronics so much that it becomes inoperational, inop, you know, inoperative, um, or we'll run out of propellant, which we use uh, with our thrusters in order to steer the antenna and face it toward the Earth to downlink, right? So if we can't point the antenna at the Earth, you could be alive and operating, but you can't send any data down. So, you know, to a scientist, you're basically dead. Um, and so one of those two things would probably... Uh, define the end of the mission as far as operability goes. And then sometime long after that, um, uh, Juno would actually fall into uh, Mm. Jupiter eventually because it's getting, as you say, closer and closer. And what we do with our thrusters on each orbit is we keep it out. We we make a little maneuver uh, with the thrusters each orbit so that we tune the orbit so that we don't get closer and closer and fall in, right? We have giant solar arrays. So if we get too close to the atmosphere, those become wings <laughs> yeah. and we don't, we don't want that. <laughs> yeah. Not an aerial mission at Jupiter yet. So yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, Scott, this has been a really uh, interesting conversation. Um, Europa just sounds like a fascinating place to study. And so uh, I'm very excited to have uh, learned a little bit with you today. Thanks for for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. That's it for this week, Martians. Huge thanks to Scott for sharing so much about the Juno mission. If you're looking for some new space-themed merchandise for the holidays, don't forget to check out our store at shop.wemartians.com. We've got a range of shirts, coffee mugs, and stickers that will surely strike your fancy. Many of our designs are available in different colors and cuts for all shapes and sizes of humans. I'm sure you'll find something you like. That's shop.wemartians.com. Have a great week and add Aries Martians. We Martians is an independent, listener-funded podcast created by me, Jake Robbins, on planet Earth. You can reach us at info at wemartians.com or on Twitter at we underscore Martians.